If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Romans chapter 15. Tonight we are going to close out a month of looking at specific verses in the New Testament that outline why Jesus came, what we celebrate at Christmas. We have seen that Jesus came to free the captives, Jesus came to serve the helpless, Jesus came to destroy the devils, Jesus came to bring us life. We saw last week on Christmas Eve, we thought about how Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And what we're going to look at tonight is the ultimate reason Jesus came. What I mean by that is that this is the reason that really sums up all the other reasons that we've already talked about. Jesus came to do all these things for us, to free us, to serve us, to seek and to save us, to give us life. But the question is, why did Jesus do all of that for us? What I want to show you tonight is that he did all of that for us to the glory of God. And the ultimate reason behind his coming is the glory of God. Now this in and of itself is huge to understand because we have a dangerous tendency. It's a subtly dangerous tendency, but it's dangerous nonetheless to begin to view Christianity and the gospel through a man-centered lens. Always thinking about what does this mean for me? What can Jesus do for me? my wants and my desires and my needs. And this is good to a certain extent because Jesus came to serve us and to give us life and to seek us and to save us. But if we stop there, this is where it gets dangerous, if we stop there, and the danger is we start to think that we are the end in this thing. That everything in God's universe centers on us. And that is simply not true. Everything in God's universe centers on God. And even his most wonderful acts of mercy and grace toward us are ultimately not intended for us to be the end, but are ultimately intended for God to be the end. Everything revolves around the glory and the greatness of God. And the beauty of Christmas is that God has chosen to glorify himself by becoming our servant in Christ, by seeking after us and saving us in our lostness. And the beauty of the gospel is God's desire for his glory involves our salvation. So what I want to show you tonight is a God-centered perspective of Christmas. And I want us to realize that, yes, in a very real sense, Jesus came to serve us, seek us, save us, all of these things. But in an ultimate sense, Jesus came for God. And the intent of Christmas is not to, to cause us to think about how great we are that Jesus would come for us. The intent of Christmas is to leave us walking out of this month thinking about how great God is. Because that's more than anything what Jesus is pointing us to in his coming. And I want to show you this in Romans chapter 15, verse 7 through 12. Now the key verse here is verse 8. Kind of like we've seen Luke 19, 10, Mark 10, 45, 1 John 3, 8. These are the verses that have said this is why Jesus came. Well, when we get to verse 8, 
It's a loaded verse. It kind of spills over into verse 9. And this is the picture of why Christ came. But I want us to read this passage from 7 to 13. Romans 15, 7 to 13. And I want us to see why Jesus came and how Jesus coming points us to the glory of God. And I want to kind of warn you from the beginning. The first part of our time together tonight, we're going to involve a lot of turning in some different places in Scripture. We're going to be in kind of some thick study. But I want to invite you to hang with me, hold on with me through it. And I want you to see how a God-centered perspective of Christmas is really, really good for man. And I want us to see how that leads us to a hope-filled new year. So we'll start in Romans 15, verse 7. And just as a side note, this is last week in the NIV. Next week, we jump to the ESV. So pause for a moment of silence. Okay, here we go. Romans 15, verse 7. Paul writes, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ, here's the verse, has become a servant of the Jews, on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. That's a loaded sentence. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, did you see it? Did you see how everything in this passage is ultimately aimed to the glory of God. He starts in verse 7, he says, accept one another in order to bring praise to God. So it's not just accept one another, period, put an end on it and we'll go home. No, it's accept one another so that God might be praised. And then in verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews, ultimately so that the nations, the Gentiles, may glorify God for his mercy. Then he gives us this whole list of Old Testament quotations that show a picture of God getting glory and praise. Even before this passage, you jump back up to verse 5 and 6, and you see the prayer that Paul prayed for the Roman church there. May God, the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that, here's why, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to show you how Christ's coming brings Glory to God in five different ways based mainly on Romans 15, 8 and the beginning of verse 9. First, Jesus came to certify God's integrity. To certify God's integrity. Camping out here in verse 8, Paul says Christ came, has become a servant of the Jews. That's the same picture we saw in Mark 10 a couple of weeks ago. Christ came not to be served, but to serve as a servant of the Jews. And then I love this phrase, on behalf of God's truth. Literally, to show, Christ came to show the truthfulness of God. And so the picture of Christ coming is Christ is pointing to the integrity and the truthfulness of God. Now what does it mean for God to be truthful? What that means is that God in his character, in his attributes, is true at all times in every circumstance. 
that's kind of a vague, ambiguous picture. But, well, compare it with us. We are not true at all times and in every circumstance. I, in my own life, I want to be loving. At the same time, I know that there are times when I say things or I do things or I think things that are not loving. And that shows a lack of integrity in me. The deal with God is that is never the case. God is always loving. He is truly loving. His attributes are perfect, perfectly displayed at all times. Now this is key because sometimes we have a tendency to have a skewed picture of God. And we, we look, for example, at some of the stories in the Old Testament. We think, well, sometimes God is just and other times God is merciful. Or sometimes God is wrathful and other times God is loving. But that's wrong. God does not choose different attributes at different times. He is true to all of these attributes at all times. He is always just and always merciful. He is always wrathful and always loving. Tozer, who I've mentioned before, said in his book on the attributes of God, Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer said, all of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. No attribute contradicts the other, but all harmonize and blend into each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. I wish I could write a sentence like that. All of his attributes harmonize and blend into each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. All that God does, Tozer said, agrees with all that God is. The familiar picture of God, he continues, is often torn between his justice and his mercy is altogether false to the facts. To think of God as inclining first toward one and then toward another of his attributes is to imagine a God who is unsure of himself, frustrated and emotionally unstable, which of course is to say that the one of whom we are thinking is not the true God at all, but a weak mental reflection of him badly out of focus. God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. Now that's the kind of sentence in Tozer's books that just leaves you like, okay, I got a headache instantly. God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. What that means, he's pointing us to the truthfulness of God, which means that in his character, in his attributes, God is always truly expressing his attributes. And you say, well, now what does this have to do with the coming of Christ? Think of it. See Christ in his coming. See Christ on the cross. See the justice of God. Sin is severe and it deserves punishment. See the wrath of God being poured out. And at the same moment, see the mercy of God and the love of God towards sinners. In the picture of Christ, we see a demonstration of the truthfulness of God. He came on behalf of God's truth to show us God's truthfulness. The fact that God is true to his character. Christ comes to show us this. Second, take a step deeper. He came to certify God's integrity and Jesus came to vindicate God's word. He came on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. So Jesus came to show us that God is true to his character and also that God is faithful to his word. Now this is where I want us to 
to do some turning. We're going to turn to five different places in Scripture. I want to start by going back to Genesis, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Turn back there with me. And what I want to what I want to do is try to unpack in our minds what Paul means when he says Christ came to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. What does that mean? That Christ coming confirms the promise made to the patriarchs. You see, the patriarchs are fathers of the faith in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's the whole story that we see developing in the book of Genesis. And so what I want to show you, starting there in Genesis chapter 18, is I want to show you God's promises to the patriarchs. First to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And I want us to see how this all culminates in the coming of Christ. How Christ confirms these promises. So start in Genesis 18, verse 18. This is God's promise to Abraham. He said to him, this is centuries before Christ came. Abraham, Genesis 18, 18, will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's a promise. And we can go to other places in Abraham's life. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, where the same promise is reiterated. God says to Abraham, you're going to be a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That was his promise to Abraham. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 26. Abraham's son, Isaac, receives a promise from God. And I want you to see how God reiterates that same promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. Look in Genesis 26, verse 3. God says to Isaac, stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will, listen to this language, I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham, the promise. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Same promise that God gave to Abraham, he now gives to Isaac. Keep turning to the right and you come to Genesis chapter 28. And God speaks to Isaac's son, Jacob. I want you to hear the promise that God gives Jacob, the patriarch. Look at Genesis 28 verse 13. Jacob, in a dream, says, there above, it stood the Lord and he said, verse 13, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac connection here. Don't miss it. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Same promise now reiterated to Jacob. Your line is going to be a great nation. Through you all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. Let me show you one more with Jacob. Keep going to the right and go to Genesis 35. I want to show you how this takes even a step deeper here in Genesis 35. These are the promises. When Romans 15, Paul talks about promises made to the patriarchs. These are the promises. Look at Genesis 35, verse 9. A different point in Jacob's journey in Jacob's life. The Bible says, (laughs) After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. This is the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel would flow from Jacob's line. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. That's the promise we've seen over and over again. But then look at this, and kings will come from your body. 
So the picture is, through the line of Jacob, of Israel, there will come a king, many kings. Now, there's so much more. We could spend the rest of the evening. We could do a whole secret church deal tonight and just walk through. And I could show you the end of Genesis 49, where Jacob is blessing his sons, who will represent the tribes of Israel. And he says to his son Judah, there would come one from the line of Judah to whom the scepter belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his. And these are pictures that God is promising, the blessing of his people, the line of Judah. We could trace throughout the rest of the Old Testament. King David, who would come from the line of Judah, to Solomon, and so on and so on, all the way to the New Testament. Now turn one place in the New Testament, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 24. Turn there. And obviously we are skipping over so much here, even in the New Testament. What we've got in the Old Testament is this, these promises made to the patriarchs and how God, the story of the Old Testament is how God is continuing that promise line such that when you get to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, you notice that before we even get a picture of the birth of Christ, what Matthew gives us is a, a genealogy. And he says, this all started with Abraham. It came through King David and now it comes through Christ. And Matthew's saying, this is the promised king that God promised to Abraham way back then. This is the king who has come. When you get to Acts chapter 3, what you see is Peter preaching a sermon to a crowd of Jewish people. And I want you to listen to what he says. It almost sounds exactly like Romans 15. He says in verse 24, we'll start there. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. Listen to this. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. He goes back to the promise made to Abraham. Verse 26 says, when God raised up his servant, it's Jesus, his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. What Peter's saying is, you know these promises that God gave to the patriarchs long ago. Well, now God has raised up his servant, Christ, as the fulfillment of those promises. Which brings us all the way back to Romans 15. And Paul says Christ came to confirm these promises that God had made. And the whole picture, don't miss it. The whole picture is Christ's coming shows us that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. Those promises are sure. I wish we had time, we could go other places. Like 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. The Christ is a picture of the fact that God is faithful to his word. Jesus came to certify God's integrity and to vindicate God's word. Third, take it a step deeper. Jesus came to demonstrate God's mercy. Here's where it gets even more wonderful because the promise is not just for the Jewish people. Through the Jewish people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Paul says, Christ came to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles, the nations, May glorify God for his mercy. And the beauty of it is that from the very beginning, God had promised, I'm going to bless the people of Israel so that all nations of the earth will be blessed. One preacher said, the blessings of God's promises spill over the banks of Israel and reach the nations. And this is the point, one of the points that Paul's been making all throughout the book of Romans is he has been saying that Christ's coming 
is for Jew and Gentile alike. And Jew and Gentile alike can be saved through Christ. This is not just for one people. This is for all peoples. Gentiles, the nations, every people, tribe, every language, every nation will glorify God for the mercy he has shown us in Christ. Christ came to demonstrate God's mercy to Jew and Gentile alike, which leads to the next part. Jesus came to demonstrate God's mercy, and in so doing, Jesus came to unify God's people. Because as a result of what God was doing among the Gentiles, now Jews and Gentiles were united together in a way they never had been before. There had been glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament, but now in the church we see a picture of the unity of peoples and tribes and nations, Jews and Gentiles together as one. Now, in order to feel the gravity of this, we've got to put ourselves in these folks' shoes. Like, just imagine the Jewish people, people of Israel for generations had tried to follow the law of God, had walked as a people who had been shown the affection of God, and, and many times had lived isolated in the middle of Gentile peoples. Isolated culturally, isolated religiously, isolated in many respects morally and ethically. There was a deep divide there as a result of generations. And now, all of a sudden, in Christ, in the first century, the picture of the church, now you've got Jews and Gentiles sitting next to one another, worshiping together. And the reality is they had a hard time getting along. A lot of the things we see in the New Testament, a lot of the letters we see are addressing some of the conflict that was going on between Jews and Gentiles. You can imagine, put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person who now you're around people who have isolated you, who are totally different from you culturally, in the past, religiously, have different backgrounds than you thought differently from you, in some senses have been enemies of you, and now you're worshiping next to one another. And the whole picture that Paul is saying here, when you get to verse 7 there, he says, accept one another. Christ has accepted Jew and Gentile alike, so you accept one another, and this will bring praise to God. And the beautiful picture that Paul is painting is that God gets great glory not just when he is worshipped by one type of people, but God gets great glory when a multiplicity of peoples, when in diversity people come together accepting one another, united in the gospel, resounding to the praise of his name. And the excellency of the king is seen when all different types of people come together to honor that king. That's the picture. Christ came to make that a reality, to unify God's people, which is exactly what he closes out with in this passage. Jesus came to certify God's integrity, to vindicate God's word. He came to demonstrate God's mercy and to unify God's people. All of that leading to this, this reason why he came. Jesus came to fulfill God's purpose. Fulfill God's purpose. And what I want you to see is that there in verse 9, Paul brings in four different quotations from the Old Testament. And I want to show you I wish we had time to turn back to all these places in the Old Testament. But I want to show you, and you might write this down in your Bible, just kind of a little side note beside each of these quotations. I want to show you a progression that Paul gives us in these pictures that he quotes from the Old Testament. First time, he quotes from Psalm, chapter 18, verse 49. It's a song of David, a song of victory, King David. And 
Psalm 18.49 says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. So here's the picture. You might write it out to the side. This is the Jews among Gentiles. Jews among Gentiles praising God. The Jews are praising God among Gentiles. Jews among Gentiles praising God. That's where the picture starts in Psalm 18.49. But then the next quotation is from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. It's the song of Moses. And it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So now it's not Jews among Gentiles. It's Jews with the Gentiles. Jews worshiping God and calling on the Gentiles, rejoice with us. Jews among Gentiles first, and then now Jews with the Gentiles together worshiping God. Which leads to the third quotation. This one from another psalm, Psalm 117, verse 1. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. Now that's a picture of the Gentiles praising God. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. You've got the Jews among the Gentiles, the Jews with the Gentiles. Now you've got the Gentiles praising God. You see that progression all leading to this last one from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. Now that's a reference to Christ, the root of Jesse, coming from the line, through the line of King David. Christ will spring up, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. And all this quotation culminates in a picture of Christ, the promised one who has come to the Jewish people, the root of Jesse, getting praise from all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. So we've gone from Jews among Gentiles to Jews with Gentiles to Gentiles praising God. And now in the end, culmination is Christ raised up and all peoples giving glory to his name. And the beauty of it is, don't miss this, this has been God's design from the very beginning. God's design was to call a people out to send his son to purchase a people from every tribe and language and nation, Jew and Gentile alike, who would unite together in praise and glory to him. And Jesus came to fulfill that purpose. Jesus came to make that purpose a reality. In Christ's coming, he brought Jews and Gentiles Revelation 7 reminds us that there's coming a day when every tribe, every people, every language, every nation will gather around the throne singing praise to God for the salvation that has come through Christ. It's what we sing in that carol. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The whole purpose of God was to send Christ so that all the nations would glorify him for his righteousness and love. This is why Christ came, a God-centered meaning behind Christmas. Jesus came to show us that God is true. He came to show us God is faithful to his word. He came to demonstrate the mercy of God, to unify the people of God, and ultimately to fulfill the purpose of God. Now I want to show you, we've walked through, okay, that's kind of thick, but now I want to show you why a God-centered Christmas is extremely good for us. Because right after Paul develops this in verses 7 through 12. Listen to what he says in verse 13. That's how he brings it all to a head. He says this prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you saw it mentioned twice. You might circle it in your Bible. Hope. And the God of hope fill you with all joy and and peace so that you may overflow. Love that picture. Overflow with hope. Circle it there. God-centered Christmas, hope-filled New Year. Now I want you to think with me about how, about why, what we have just seen in Romans 15, 7 through 12, causes us to have great hope in our lives, and specifically hope for us as we enter into a new year. When I talk about hope, I'm not talking about hope the way the world talks about hope. I'm not talking about an empty, wishful thinking that says, well, I I hope the next year will be good. I, I hope the economy will rebound. I hope my job will be secure or the job market will get better. I hope my relationships will be smooth. I hope the next year my health will be good. I hope that the political situation will be good. I hope that the world situation will be safe. This is how the world hopes. And I want to urge you tonight not to hope in those things. Because the reality is, and we know this, any one of those things could crumble in an instant. We know that it comes to our health, any one of us is one day away from a diagnosis that we never saw coming, aren't we? That our hope is not in the economy, the job market, or politics, or world situation. I want to urge you not to put your hope in these things. I want to urge you to put your hope in the glory of God. And I want to show you why the glory of God is a supreme foundation for hope in your life. Paul said it earlier in Romans 5, when he was talking about suffering, he said, when we're suffering, he said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? How is the glory of God a spring from which hope flows? I want you to think about how the glory of God gives hope based on what we just saw about Christ coming for the glory of God, based on what we just saw in Romans 15, 7 through 12 about Christ coming. Think about these reasons for hope in 2010. Got in your notes. First, in 2010, hope in this. God will be true to his character in 2010. God will be true to his character. Christ came to show us the truthfulness of God. And as a result, we can know, brothers and sisters, we can know that no matter what happens in 2010, mark this down, no matter what happens in 2010, God will be loving. And God will be merciful. God will be good. God 
will be wise and God will be just and God will be sovereign. He will be in control of every single detail in 2010. In a world where everything is unreliable and inconsistent and shifting, brothers and sisters, God is constant. And he does not change like shifting shadows. And all throughout 2010, we can hope in this. He will be true to his character at every moment, in every situation. We can trust in, this is the words of Paul, trust in him. God will be true to his character. God will be faithful to his word. This is what Romans 15 has taught us. Reminded us the reason I wanted to take us back and show us those different passages is because I want us to realize that when God speaks, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Guaranteed, he keeps it. God is always, always, always faithful to his word. Now, obviously, we don't have a promise. You and I don't have a promise. None of us have a promise in 2010 that our health will be good. None of us have the promise that our job will be secure. None of us have promise that the finances will be there, that the world around us will be safe. We do not have promises like that. But what we have from God are promises that are far, far, far greater than these things. Just a simple journey through Romans shows us deep and abiding promises to hold on to. Sure, we don't know if we will have good health or be in a good financial situation or this or that, but we can know this. We do know this. Romans 8, 28, God will use every single thing that happens in 2010 in your life for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, guaranteed. He's gonna use it all, even the worst things. He's gonna use them for good in your life in 2010. We can know based on Romans 8:15 that no matter how difficult it gets, we have no reason to fear because we did not receive a spirit of fear. We have received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If we may share in suffering during 2010, and it's possible we might, but we can know that even if we share in suffering, one day we are going to share in his glory. Guaranteed. If God is for us in 2010, who can be against us? I'm say 31, 32. The reality is, even if we do get a diagnosis, whatever the cancer or the tumor or the trauma or the trial or the temptation there is, we can know this. We are eagerly looking forward to the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our very bodies. There is nothing this world can do to us that can take away that hope. God will be faithful to his word in your life, guaranteed. Put your hope in that. Find joy and peace in that. Don't look other places for hope. Let him be your hope. In him, Christ, faithfulness of Christ, the truthfulness of Christ. Christ is the hope in our lives. Christ is the hope in our marriages. Christ is the hope in our children's lives. Christ is the hope in the world around us, among the nations. 
Christ is our hope. God will be true to his character. God will be faithful to his word. God will be constant in his mercy in the next year. Hope in this. God will be constant in his mercy. So the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. We look in the New Testament, we see that oftentimes the Gentiles almost felt like second-class citizens, kind of left out of the picture because they weren't there from the beginning in the same way the Jewish people were. And the picture is God showing that they are included in the wide wings of the mercy of God, that they are brought in. God is merciful to all peoples. Know this, brother or sister, know this. There is not one detail that you will face in 2010 that your God is not already intimately aware of. And not one detail or situation that you will face in the next year that God has not already promised to be there to hear your cry or to bear your burden and to give you every single thing you need to walk through what lies ahead. So that in 2010, whether you walk through valleys or mountaintops, either one, you will find yourself glorifying God for his mercy. God will be constant in his mercy. Next, think about this. God will show his love through his people. We've seen how God has brought together different types of people into the church and designed the unity of different types of people in his church around the gospel to be a display of his glory. Faith family here at Brook Hill, specifically here. God has designed us in the same way that Paul is urging these Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, God has designed us to accept one another, to care for one another, to provide for one another, to love one another in a way that shows a distinct community of faith that resounds to the glory of God. Not because everybody looks the same or thinks the same or feels the same or dresses the same. Because together we have been embraced by Christ and captured by a glorious gospel and we find ourselves around other people that maybe don't look like us or think like us. That's the whole point. It's not that we agree on every single thing. Verse chapter 14, Paul's been talking about people have differences in different things, but he says accept one another, love one another, bring praise to God in this. This is what makes the church beautiful. Not that we are we're united by the standards this world sets up. We're united by a gospel. We're a gospel-driven community. I got an email recently from a college student in Chicago who is originally from North Korea. And he's moving down to Birmingham for graduate school. And he was looking online for information about churches. And the day he happened to go to our website was also, just so happened to be the week when we as a church, and published on our website there, were focusing our prayers on North Korea. <laughs> God has this thing rigged. So... He wrote me, he said, Reverend Platt. (laughs) 
I don't think anybody's ever called me Reverend Flat, but I'm called other things. But anyway, all right. Reverend Platt, as I am looking at schools, the most important thing to find, to me at least, is a good local church to be involved in and to serve in. Which, if I can just pause for a second, a little mini sermon to the side here. That's a good word. I know that there are high school seniors in the process now of thinking through what's next. and Freshmen, sophomores, juniors are already thinking through some of those things. Let me encourage you, parents, students, not to let church be an afterthought in a college decision. Let church be a primary thought in a college decision. Yes, academic credentials are important, geographic location, all the other things. But let me encourage you not to just think, well, I'll just find a church when I get there. No, look, and if there's not a gospel-believing, Bible-preaching, God-glorifying church, then be very concerned about going to a place where, as you will be challenged in your faith, you do not have a community of faith around you. This is huge. I'm so thankful for this kind of perspective in a college student. So he writes, a simple Google search led me to your website, and the first thing I noticed was the slide that said, pray for North Korea. And I was so moved and touched by that. I'm a North Korean refugee that somehow, by the grace of God, escaped from North Korea and was adopted into a Christian home here in the United States. I've seen lots of Christians say a lot of mean, abrasive, and unloving things about my people, and they mock the poverty and oppression that my people live in. To see a church praying for my people is really moving to me. I just wanted to say thank you for having your church pray for my people and somehow praying for the parents that put me on a boat to the United States. And he says, I think if you would allow a Democrat to join your church... I will find a home at Brook Hills in the very near future if you would allow me the opportunity. God bless you and your ministry. I wrote back and told him, you are more than welcome here as evidence of the indescribable, unexplainable, unbelievable grace of God in this church. We actually accept Republicans here too. This is the picture of the church, isn't it? It's what God has designed. Not that we find our unity in political affiliation or, or dress or this or that. All the things that the world defines, organizations are close by. No, we're a gospel-centered community. United in the fact that we've been embraced by Christ. We've embraced him. And that brings glorious praise to God. And God has designed for us to be that kind of community faith with one another. And I pray that we will see glory of God and that kind of community that we experience as a church in 2010. All of that leading to last picture of hope, facet of hope and the glory of God. We can know that in 2010, God will use our lives to accomplish his purpose. Here's the deal. We've seen from the beginning creation. God has purpose to bring all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation, tribe, language, tongue, literally every people group together to glorify him. And Jesus came to fulfill that purpose. And what this means is that as we give ourselves to that same purpose, making his glory known among all peoples of the world, we can be confident that we will not fail because it is the purpose of God. This is where I want to be 
honest, maybe even a little bit vulnerable. As I think about 2010, uh, 2009. There's a lot of things that I have learned in 2009 and clearly a lot more that I have to learn. One of the things, though, that has stuck out to me in 2009 is that as long as we as Christians and as long as we in the church live to make the glory of God known among all the peoples of the world and try to figure out how to live Christianity in Birmingham, Alabama and be the church in Birmingham, Alabama for the sake of the glory of Christ among all the people groups of the world, as long as that is our purpose, it will not be easy. It will not be easier at all. It will be harder. It will be more difficult. Satan will not sit idly by while the people of God pursue the glory of Christ among all the peoples of the world. I, th- I think about, I think about what God has done by his grace over the last year, and the stories are too numerous to tell. I, th- I think about people who have been saved in homeless shelters and women's centers and prisons and assisted living centers as a result of the grace of God in small groups in this faith family. I think about a whole host of individuals and families who have stepped up and said, we as a church are going to make sure that every single child in our county is cared for when they are removed from their home because of drugs or abuse or variety of other factors. What a picture by God's grace. We're going to make sure that every kid in our county has loving arms around them at night. I think about businessmen and businesswomen who have led and leveraged their companies to focus on urgent need in the world. Stay-at-home moms who have organized ministries and community and among the nations. And then I think about, oh, the grace of God. Even in just the past few months, the reality that there are there are hundreds of kids in the poorest country in the world who today are thriving when they were starving to death. That's God is good. I think about where we are going in the days to come as we, as we focus on urgent need in Birmingham, communities that are, that are in great need in many different ways, difficult communities in many different ways. And I think about this radical experiment what we want to do with our resources, sacrificing our resources, and taking steps that I, many of us, this is a church we've not taken before. There's a guy in Germany, a reporter for some Christian organization who heard about the radical experiment, and so he called me from Germany. To, and he asked me, he said, is this kind of risky? I was like, yeah, I guess. And 
He said, well, do you know what you're doing? I said, no, man. <laughs> we don't. Like, the reality is, as we do this in Birmingham and different parts of the world, and as we pray over the next year and raise up and send out, hopefully, prayerfully, this time next year, church planning teams to places where there is no gospel, the reality is it will not get easier for us. It will get harder. It will be more costly. It will be more sacrifice. Less safety at times. But I am finding great hope in the reality that as long as we are giving ourselves to the purpose of God that has been there since the beginning of creation, that it may be tough and it may be difficult and it may be costly, but it will be worth it. God will use our lives to accomplish his purpose. So hope in this. Hope in this when it gets hard. Hope in this when it, it gets costly. Hope in this when it's not safe. Hope in this when way of thinking, way of life goes against everything in our culture and even our church culture around us. Hope in this. God, from the beginning, has been making his glory known among all the peoples of the world. And as long as you and I are in on that purpose, we are guaranteed, guaranteed to see that purpose finished. It's going to happen. And it will be worth it. And this is where it all leads to. Why Christmas? Why did Jesus come? Yes, he came to free us and to serve us and to bring us life and to seek us and to save us. But deeper than that, ultimately, the reason why he came is the same reason why we live. The reason why Jesus came is the same reason why we live, and that reason is the glory of God. And we are caught up in Christ with this grand, overarching, unstoppable purpose, the glory of God among all the peoples of the earth, enjoying his glory, exalting his glory, being satisfied in his glory, savoring his glory, and spreading his glory among the nations. That is reason to celebrate a God-centered Christmas and a hope-filled New Year.